Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Rudy Arredondo. He is president of the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers Trade Association, and we're speaking in Washington, D.C., at the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you so much, Liz. Appreciate it. So let's begin with you telling us your story and how you came to found the organization that you represent. Well, I started as a migrant farm worker and working in the field since the age of five. And then, um, you know, migrant farm workers would travel throughout the country. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. What states did you work in? Texas, Arizona, Washington State, um, on to Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, Minnesota, Michigan, and we went one, always wound up in uh, northwestern Ohio, near Toledo. Okay. Yeah. So you did all kinds of crops. All kinds of crops, yeah. Yes. How many months of the year were you working? Uh, well, we would usually leave right after uh, school let, let us out, mm-hmm. in, which is about <clears throat> late May or early June. And our first stop was usually like in, in East Texas, mm-hmm. Navasota, near Houston, Sugar Land. Then we go up to Wasahatchee, then from there on to um, Brownfield, Evelyn, Lubbock, to pick cotton. Uh, <clears throat> and from there we they go to Arizona, pick cotton. And then on, on to other states, uh, asparagus and um, different things in Idaho, of course. Uh, you know, potatoes. Potatoes. Yes. And in Minnesota, it was uh, sugar beets, you know, thinning and... Uh, then we would go down to Michigan and pick cherries. Uh, and down in Ohio, it would be tomatoes. So, and also they had sugar beets as well. So, used to thin and, and uh, thin and, and wheat those crops. Yes. Uh, ultimately, we settled out in northwestern Ohio, and, and uh, I was in the service by that time. And so, when my family settled out there. Um, then they bought a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman that they rented a house during the, during the time that they were in Ohio <clears throat> was uh, he, he didn't have any heirs. So the gentleman asked my father if he would wanted to uh, wanted the land and the house. He said, "Yeah, sure." So he bought the house and and uh, and, uh, and the land. And to this day, we, we have it. I mean, they passed away, my, both my mom and dad. But, uh, my, uh, the older and my youngest brothers, there's eight of us. Uh, I'm the oldest, and then there's four girls in between. And the last three are boys, and Robert is the one that has the family farm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, 
as a result of that, you know, and I've been always, uh, you know, I, I worked with the uh, United Farm Workers Union before it was a union in the 70s, I mean, in the 60s, and uh, advocating on behalf of the farm workers and, and uh, work with Cesar Chavez and with Dolores Huerta. To this day, I mean, we're still, we're still connected. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> but the thing that was missing was the fact that many of the farm workers, migrant farm workers, that we work with transition from farm workers into farm ownership, which includes my family. Yes. And uh, for many years, I mean, I, I worked for the Department of Agriculture uh, under, you know, uh, Farmers Home Administration under Carter. Subsequently, then I went to do some other things. My, but usually migrants and farm workers were a part of whatever I was doing, mm -hmm. the clinics. Mm -hmm. work, I worked as a, a policy director for the migrant and rural health clinics and um, did rural housing, uh, work with uh, legal services. Well, you can't separate all those No, things. exactly. Yes. I mean, that's, they're all part of the, the same elements in mm -hmm. terms of advocating on their behalf. But like I said, what was missing was that we didn't have a voice in terms of the formulation of agricultural farm and agricultural policy. Yes. So when I retired in um, 2005, I became a board member of the Rural Coalition, uh, and to this day I'm still a, a board member. <clears throat> and so there I met many of the Latino farm workers that were doing farm. They, 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 they were, were farmers, they yes. Were farmers. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 2005, I said, you know what, let's, uh, let's form a group of people that we, I didn't think of an organization at that time, but said, Look, let's get a group of people that at least we can have some input in terms of the formulation of the farm and agriculture policy. And, <clears throat> and that's how we started. And in 2005, uh, you know, we were, there was a lot of support uh, for what we were doing by then Secretary Mike Johans. And he provided some conference funding for us to meet in Las Cruces, New Mexico in 2005. So that's where we were founded in, in uh, September 2005. We had about 350 farmers uh, at that time. And, uh, then we had, because the secretary was there, there was a word got out, and so we had about 100 uh, Native American farmers came to our event, so, and then we had the Hmong farmers who we were working with already from uh, California, Minnesota, mm -hmm. and, and Arkansas. So they came to our event. Uh, the African American farmers, uh, we've worked with them, you know, I, I mean, I have this network that working in the Southeast for many years under, uh, the Department of Agriculture. And so we had about 500 people show up. I mean, I mean this was just like, wow. That's amazing. So, uh, and, uh, you know, we will be celebrating our 15th anniversary. Yes. Our quinceañera, which is yes. what <laughs> On uh, October 16th and 17th at Isleta Pueblo. Okay, so that's why you've chosen this casino, time. Yes. yes. Uh -huh. um, in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
So we extend an invitation to you and hope that you you will be made, able to make it. Thank you. Uh, I plan on checking my calendar because yeah, I'll come if I can. And you, please tell Poppy that we would love to I have her I will tell there, Poppy also. As yes. well as Richard. You know, yes, I'll tell yes, Richard. Yeah, because yes. I, I happen to be very fond of of uh, all of those folks. Uh, Slow Food, as, as I told you, we are members. We've been members for probably about seven years now. So. Uh, so that's how we came about. Now we have about 75,000 Latino farm, farmers and ranchers throughout the United States. Uh, our base is New Mexico, because that's, that's where we were founded. But we work in Colorado, uh, in uh, of course New Mexico. Uh, we're starting a chapter in Arizona, California. We are also in Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, Texas, of course. And like I said, you know, it's, it's been a wonderful experience to me. It's the best job that I've ever had uh -huh. uh, because, you know, I don't have to be, I don't have to look over my shoulder. Into, you know. That's right. So There's nobody it, to report Oh, yes, to. exactly. Yes. Um, and it's, and it's uh, uh, you know, we incorporate uh, different elements, for instance, culture. Because mm -hmm. uh, many of us are musicians, we're artists, we're poets. And so we make an attempt to not only to incorporate all of that, and we have a great time. And we, we mentor young people. One of our initiatives is in terms of youth and trying to get folks, young people, to understand that, you know, agriculture is more than stoop level. That there's careers in terms of engineering, in terms of soil scientists, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So, so those, are, those are things that we're doing. And uh, we have, uh, by <clears throat> National Agriculture Statistical Service, you know, we went from, uh, we went from, uh, let me see, what was it? Uh, we now own over 32 million acres. Wow. Uh, and we generate like $32 billion annually. That's since the 2012. That really we went, is quite yeah. an impact. It was, what was incredible to me is I, like, that the 2012, it was at $8 billion okay. annually. Mm -hmm. And we went from that to 32, I mean to two, uh, $23 billion yeah. in, in sales. It's about three times, almost, yeah. 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 So, uh, and, and that's by, we know that that's, undercount because you know not in order for you to be a part of the egg statistic yes you have to have your your farm registered with the farm service agency and it, and if you don't or you're if you're not in their census then you are not counted, you're not counted. and yes. we know that there's because we we found you know that's one of the well uh, one of our jobs is to identify those farmers, let them know that, that in, in order for them to avail themselves of USDA program resources, yes. you need to, to register, register the farm. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not a high risk, but very few people, I mean, I was surprised, that, like in California, my first trip out there um, was, uh, you know, I had some of the most sophisticated people they were farming. I mean, they were farmers, mm -hmm. and yet they didn't know about USA programs. Yes. So, so that's part of 
our our effort in terms of doing outreach and, and uh, letting people know. Uh, we have a, a small contract with, with the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation Service in terms of Latino farmers outreach in terms of the conservation programs. The interesting enough, there's almost no Latino farmers that are a part of some of those conservation programs. The reason is that there isn't sufficient uh, incentive. They don't. There isn't enough uh, to be able to let your 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 land lay fallow or or to rest. Right. Because you need it for in order to sustain yourself. Right. Exactly. So if you have ten thousand acres, well, that's a different story, you know. And they, and those sure. are the folks that. Right that take advantage of those programs. Right, but if you have a, a small acreage, no, you, you just can't, can't afford to no, do you it. you can't afford it. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, part of, one of our major objectives <clears throat> is to try to uh, transition from uh, conventional agriculture into organic. Mm. Certainly there's a higher return. Higher return, and that's really, uh, you know, as land-based people, that's really our, that's our tradition. Mm -hmm. However, you know when, and and my my father was came a became a victim of that. That his store, his seed store manager, became his <laughs> advisor. Okay. Yeah. And and so I mean those folks, you know, they, they want sell. to sell these things. Yeah, yes. They yes. Fertilizer, herbicides, yeah. pesticides. And even even taking away the sort of <clears throat> cynical, well, this is what they do for a living. They sell this. They probably believe in it too. Oh yeah, no. So, yeah, is, I mean, it's, they, it's not they insincere. Yeah, no, they buy no. it themselves. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so we're trying to educate mm -hmm. our own community, re-educate. Part of it a lot is re-education. And, uh, and one of the crops that we were very interested in, that piqued my interest was industrial hemp, in that it is, is, has so many characteristics and qualities that it, it absorbs the toxins in the soil. Right. And so, I mean, 15 years ago, I, I knew about, I knew some of the history in terms of, and, and the crop was so demonized as a result of... Right, um, because of marijuana. Well, and yeah, and, uh, you know, William Randolph Hearst didn't want the <laughs> right. you know, competition with his pulp. Yes. So, uh, so that, it's taken us a while, uh, and we've worked with, uh, you know, uh, Representative Paul Ryan and Senator Mitch McConnell, who helped us to legalize uh, industrial hemp, mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to be working uh, further with with them and others because the, the 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 producers have gotten ahead of the regulatory agencies. Not to mention government. They they've uh, and they need to have some relief. For instance, we have to deal with 50 individual jurisdictions. In order to be able to, you can't transport this crop across state lines. Oh my! You can't bank. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the THC is much too low, uh, so that it, you know if it goes beyond, you can't sell it. So you have to destroy the crop. So that's another thing. You know, we need crop insurance. So those are some of the some of the issues uh, that yes, you're facing. Issues that, that we're that we're working with, and, and uh, you know, this, I spoke with the secretaries from definitely Colorado and uh, 
New Mexico and California because that's those are concerns they're very legitimate concerns um, like I said you know some people are going to lose their farms as a result of planting this crop and and they have they're going to lose they're going to lose them because they, they can't they can't cross they can't they can't cross state lines that's really that's really a dilemma because you think well now we can plant it well, it's but, legal I mean it's yes. not like it's a schedule one and it's, right. you know yes and, and uh, you know that doesn't have the THC that uh, marijuana has right um, and yet you know some some of that is has been legalized and certainly Colorado and California right, and, right. even in Louisiana Oh, really? Medical, medical, medical marijuana has okay. been legalized. Yes. So it's you know those are, uh, you know, the society has a strange way of uh, dealing with with some of this, which is overly zealous over. Right. There's stuff a lot of that, overkill. Yeah, yes. I mean. I, I I think that hemp, and the idea that it can clean soil over the course of several years in this natural way is one of the most promising aspects of it and the fact that really I think people should uh, be encouraged because I think hemp just has so much promise it's really a shame that it still has all these barriers at the same time well you know I, like I said I think there's there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure on on the uh, politicians and and rightly so in terms of uh you know this this crop is is is, is it has incredible uh potential you know, potential mm -hmm. of so many things mm -hmm. yes you know so so we're i'm here and i'm you know i'm trying to do my best to try to but yeah i don't first of all some of the folks that i already talked to are like Right. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, good, you know, but uh, let's do something about it, right, you know, and, yeah. and I'll help you, you know. I mean, I'm willing to go public and, and you know, and others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just at the World Ag Expo, which was is huge in Tulare, California. And the interest, I mean, people came from all over the world. And, you know, interesting enough, because we have been such strong advocates, our organization was, you know, uh, like the, one of the centerpieces in terms of the oh, industrial hemp. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like I said, we, we're the only Latino farm and ranch organization in the United States. Uh, and if you were going to um, to create the ideal world and you could make, uh, wave a magic wand and make it happen, what would you do? What do you think would most enhance the lives of the Latino farmers? Well, it would, what would be is is to for them to have sufficient resources to be able to sustain themselves and their families. Uh, see, most of the most of our our farmers are small producers. You know, anywhere between a quarter of an acre to maybe a couple of hundred, and that's the exception rather than the rule. Um, it would be it would. The ability, for instance, to get into organic, uh, you know, because Production. it added, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, added value, and they would increase their their income, mm -hmm. and also help their community because we're not into exporting. Mm -hmm. The our products are consumed within a fifty to one hundred fifty mile radius, and in this, you know, uh, climate 
in these environmental things that are happening. Having food close by is your best insurance. Right. Okay. Um, you know, one other thing that we're working on is uh, I'm part of the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition, and we're we're very concerned about the the deterioration of our infrastructure nationwide. You know, we're running a, a, a 21st century economy on a 19th century infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The latest infrastructure um, that was uh, put in place and, and repaired was under FDR. That's how far away so now, I mean, I just went to uh, last uh, spring. I went to to see my visit my my family in Ohio, and I went to Indiana, Illinois, Michigan. The roads were terrible, and I'm talking about the interstate. Right. I mean, it was it was potholes, and construction that they. I mean, it it was just the the middle the median was all these barriers because they, they didn't have enough money to 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 complete to, the to project, complete the project. Mm -hmm. and this you know uh, then this this flooding that we're having you know I tell people you know farmers and ranchers are the first responders of any climate event we have to protect our property mm -hmm. so that we need to ensure that they have uh, the resources to be able to take care of their communities so so yeah no this this is uh, something that you know we're taking to to heart do you do you think that um in the wildfires in california that a lot of latino farmers were affected by we know they were yes, yes. yeah uh, latino families and, and those those uh, you know because most of the impoverished communities Latino or otherwise, mm -hmm. or in areas in which the elite don't want to live in, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes them very vulnerable. And they're in the worst places and... Uh, with the worst resources. Yeah. Yes. And with, with, yeah, with no resources for the most part. So, uh, and, and they're the ones that, that, that make these other folks' lives, you know, so comfortable. Mm -hmm. Ironically, you know? Yes. Yes. Mm. So, so what do you see for the future? Well, we just have it to be, uh, uh, you know, persistent. I mean, we have to continue to to make our lives as uh, best as we can. And you know, I uh, I just uh, am uh, honored to the fact that that uh, you know the farmers farmers of any stripe which are so um, paranoid and so, for good reason, you know, they, they, they don't trust people. My father was one of them. I mean, he wouldn't tell me how much he made a year because even though I needed that information to get his, <laughs> you know, uh, we had uh, cotton allotments in, in Texas and he, yeah, you don't need to know that. Mm -hmm. Government doesn't need to know. I said, Dad, I, I get to fill out the application. Right. Yeah. So I mean, that—that's a typical farmer. Yes. They're, they're extremely close. Yes. They don't want to share because they—they they, they see their their neighbor mm -hmm. as competition. Right. Right. And it's true. 
Yes. You know, a lot of the techniques that my father used uh, when he was, uh, he used to manage uh, Senator Lloyd Benson's father's farm. Okay. And so, so he would he would do certain things in 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 his own land, my dad's land, but then they would copy. For instance, uh, do you, you know how uh, you know the carrots are planted double row? Yes. My dad took that concept to cotton, and he doubled his yield. Oh wow! <laughs> so the next year, guess what? Everybody planted. Of course, yes. yes. And what my father was trying to do, because you're cotton allotment, you had you, they would only allow you so much, um, you know, so much, uh, so many acres. Mm -hmm. Okay, they, so that was what you had. And my father was trying to. He was trying to increase, increase the yield, yield on yes. the same amount yes. of acreage. Yes. <laughs> so the next year, I we see all these all these farmers, you know, planting double row. <laughs> I told you so. Yes. You, you can't trust anybody. <laughs> uh, that was funny. Oh wow, that is funny. Well, I want to thank you for being here today. Do you have anything else that you want no, to? No, I just want to thank you and. Uh, I'm so glad we met, and I love what you're doing, and I hope that I get an opportunity to visit Louisiana. Well, I hope it's, that you can come by, but I'm definitely going to follow up with Poppy and Richard, yeah, so I'll yeah. be in touch. Yes, absolutely. You've been listening to the tip of the tongue on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.